We are, as you can see, picking up in Luke chapter 20. Jesus is nearing the end of his three-year public ministry, and by now, in his ministry, the Pharisees and the other Jewish religious leaders are committed to killing Jesus. I mean, they're, they're committed to ending his life. They detest his teaching. They are violently jealous of his popularity. And to make matters worse for them, as we pick up here in Luke chapter 20, Jesus has just finished telling a parable which makes it clear that by rejecting Jesus, they will be removed from power. They're going to lose all authority, and they will ultimately be destroyed. So understanding that that's the context, it helps us as we jump in here in verse 19, because we can see that the, the purpose of the Pharisees, the purpose of the religious leaders here in Luke chapter 20 is to catch Jesus. And Jesus, as we have come to expect from the Son of God, will not be stopped. In fact, he will demonstrate yet again in our text this morning that he is the Son of God, that he has all authority and all power, even over the government. And so I've titled the message this morning, Sovereign Even Over Caesar. And if you look around this morning, you're thinking, well, must be a lot of people read the text and, and knew that it was on taxes and government, and so that's why we have a lot of empty chairs. It's probably more owing to the fact that Cedarville students, most of whom have already gone home now, rather than our text. But this is the text we're going to look at this morning. It's where we come to as we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke, sovereign even over Caesar. Well, let's pick up in verse 19. As Jody read for us, the word of the Lord says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. And so they watched for him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and there is jurisdiction of the governor. Once again, context here is important. Jesus has just revealed that he is the dividing line, that those who don't believe in him as the Father's Son will be crushed, will be destroyed. That Jesus is the stone from verses 17 and 18, the one who would come and who would crush those who reject him, which sadly would be many. But we've also seen in verses 17 and 18 that Jesus is the foundation stone or the cornerstone for those who rightly acknowledge him as Savior. And tragically, rather than turning to him and trusting in him, instead the chief priests try to lay hands on Jesus because they know that he's talking about them. They know that Jesus is talking about their own destruction. And just... For reference there in verse 19, that the terminology lay hands on him, that's different than what we do when we ordain new elders or when we pray for someone. This is probably more akin to if you have small kids at home and one has a toy that another one wants and, and that child lays hands on his or her brother or sister. 
This is, this is more the, what's being referred to here. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to grab him. They're trying to take him away. But they're in a tricky spot because the crowds are amazed by Jesus. He's a fan favorite. In our terminology of the day, we might say Jesus' ministry has gone viral. In fact, we saw back in chapter 19, verse 48, that the people were hanging on his words. And then again in chapter 20, verse 6, we, we see that the people believe that Jesus is a prophet, and so they're caught. Like They need to show that Jesus isn't a prophet, that he's actually a traitor. But at the same time, they need to do more than just show the Jews that Jesus is a traitor. They need to also show the Romans, who were the the governing authority of the day, that Jesus is also a threat. Because the Jews do not possess on their own the ability to execute anyone. So they want to kill Jesus, but they need to show the Romans that Jesus deserves to die. So what do they do? Verse 20, they watch him. They look for a way to trap him. They devise a cunning plan, and so they send spies to Jesus, pretending to be sincere. These spies come with a question, a question designed to trap Jesus, a question which will allow them to deliver Jesus up to the authority and their jurisdiction of the governor. Look at verse 21. So they asked him, this is their question, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. And show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Before we get to their question, just notice for a moment their flattery. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, do they believe this? No. They don't believe this at all. And we know that they don't believe this because of their actions to this point. In fact, this very question is designed to trap Jesus because they do not believe that he teaches the way of God. Friends, this should serve as a warning to us about the dangers of flattery. Both flattery when we receive it and flattery when we're tempted to give it. One author, Lou Priolo, writes, and he defines flattery this way. Flattery is trying to influence or gain an advantage over someone by praising or pleasing him above and beyond that which his character or position merits. It's trying to influence, trying to get what we want by saying or doing things that are insincere, by going overboard, by going beyond that which someone's character or position merit. And flattery, friends, is sinful because it's dishonest. But here, flattery isn't the only thing that the chief priests get wrong. Look at the question again that they ask. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Caesar was 
the Roman emperor, since lots of the Roman emperors went by the name Caesar, this particular Caesar was Tiberius Caesar, who reigned from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37. And he believed himself to be God, to be divine. So the question really for the Jews then is this, is it lawful to pay taxes to a foreign ruler who thinks he is a god or is that idolatry? Now this question might just seem innocent enough, but it had been hotly debated long before Jesus' earthly ministry. For example, a man named Judas the Galilean in 86 through 87, famously taught that paying taxes to Caesar was wrong because by paying taxes, one was showing that Caesar was Lord instead of the one true God. And so he taught that political revolt was the only option for those who believed in the lordship of Yahweh. So in this case now, this question comes to Jesus, and if Jesus agrees with Judas the Galilean and says that paying taxes is idolatrous, this would be easy then for the chief priests to hand Jesus over to the Romans as an insurrectionist, as someone who's trying to overthrow the government, who's teaching the people to revolt against the Roman authority. But if Jesus says that Jews should pay taxes to Rome, then he would indicate he believes that Caesar is Lord, maybe even divine. And there's no way that God's promised Messiah would acknowledge another deity. You can see how either answer Jesus would give would destroy him. Either he would be handed over to the Romans as a traitor, or he would be discarded by the Jews as a false messiah. So what does Jesus do? Well, he sees through this trick, verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, And to God, the things that are God's. So picture in your mind just for a moment what this must have looked like. The chief priests, the scribes, the experts in the law, they have Jesus right where they want him. No matter which way he answers, he's toast. So in my mind, I I kind of think that they ask this question and then they kind of lean back. Maybe on their elbows, maybe kind of cross their arms, maybe kind of look at each other like, yeah, we, this, is, this is the ace card, right? Like, there is no way. Checkmate. You're toast. You're done for. They know that Jesus cannot get out of this. They finally have found a way to destroy this man who has ruined their reputation and weakened their control. And soon things in their own minds will be back to how they should be. But Jesus sees through this trap. He does not give a yes-no answer that they think that they've cornered him into giving. Instead, he does something strange. He asks for a denarius. 
This is what a denarius looks like. Denarius was worth a day's wages for the common laborer, about, we could say, maybe $120, $150 today. On one side of the coin was a picture of Caesar with the inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side of the coin was a picture of his mother, Livia, which just as an aside, like probably a good move if you're Caesar and you want to curry favor with your mom, like put a picture of your mom on the other side of the coin. But it comes with the words high priest under the picture of his mother. And so you can see why having a coin like this, Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, and a picture of his mother which says high priest, you can see why for the Jews having a coin like this would be considered idolatrous itself. Like the coin's themselves were offensive to the Jews, which believed that Yahweh alone was divine and that God himself established the high priestly line and it most assuredly did not include Livia. And so this coin broke the first and the second of the Ten Commandments. It was honoring another God before the Lord by claiming that Caesar was divine and it was a carved image meant to show a God. Notice what Jesus says here yet again in verse 25. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. There are a few things, I think, that are important to capture here in Jesus' response. First, Jesus defies the entrapment of his enemies. The chief priests and the leaders have worked and worked to find a way to trap Jesus. And they have landed on what they believe to be the perfect plan, an airtight plan meant to destroy Jesus. And yet Jesus just makes an end run around their entrapment. This probably harkens back a bit maybe in your mind to Luke chapter 4 when the crowd, the angry mob of people at the beginning of Jesus' ministry wanted to throw him off a cliff. And yet Jesus, it says in Luke chapter 4, just walks right through their midst. And you're like, how does he even do that? He doesn't in any way here in his answer deny that God alone is God. And yet, he also acknowledges that there are things that belong to Caesar, at least this coin. And he gives an answer here that is completely out of the box, completely unexpected, which, again, as an aside, should have been an indication that just maybe, in fact, he is who he says he is, that he is God in the flesh. And Jesus defies the entrapment of his enemies. Second thing to notice here in Jesus' response is that Jesus here teaches limited obedience to government. The message here is clear and unavoidable. Followers of Jesus ought to pay taxes. But it might be helpful to back up just for a minute and be reminded why we ought to pay taxes. Because the Bible is clear that God has established three institutions in our world. The first is the home. 
The home is designed by God as the institution whereby husbands and wives raise and train up children to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the home is the first line of disciple making. The second institution established by God is the church. Now, when we read in our English Bibles and we come across the word church, the church word church sometimes can refer to all who are born again, spanning both global and generational boundaries, so it can refer to the universal church. But most of the time, when the word church appears in your Bible, it refers to the local church. There are lots of ways we could define a local church. One definition, a short definition, could be this. The local church could be defined as born-again followers of Jesus Christ who self-consciously commit themselves to gather together for worship, the preaching of Scripture and the ordinances, and to help one another grow in faithfulness to the Lord and obedience to his word for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. Now, if that seems like a long run-on sentence, it's because I wrote it, and it is a long run-on sentence. Paul did it, and so can I, except he was inspired and I'm not. But the local church is designed to reflect a community where Christ is king and individual members of this community are brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, one goal of the local church is to display the goodness and the beauty of our God as the gospel is spread in the world. So we have the home, we have the church, but the third institution ordained by God, is the state. And the state, according to Scripture, is designed for two primary purposes. The first is to restrain evil. And the second is to reward good. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Punishment and praise. You see both of those. We are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every institution who are designed by God to punish evil and to praise good. Now notice, this is a limited Role, which I say that Jesus teaches limited obedience to the government. It's a limited role. But, as you can see, can the state tax its citizens to fulfill its God-given mandate? Yes. Jesus is clear here on that. And so, when we pay our taxes... We should do so joyfully, right? Do all things without grumbling or complaining, Scripture says. Because when we pay our taxes, we are doing what? We are acknowledging God's design. We are acknowledging that he is the one who first ordained the institution of the state. But there's something more. Not only did God establish the state. The Bible goes beyond that to tell us that God is actually the one who raises up and brings down specific leaders from power. 
And so, for example, we read in Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. To pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. It is God, friends, who establishes leaders and who removes leaders. And so when we submit to and pray for our leaders, we are acknowledging God's divine plan. Like Whether they are good or whether they are evil, Jesus teaches us, Elsewhere, to pray for our leaders. Keep in mind that Caesar, for those of us living here now in the United States, Caesar was arguably worse than any past, present, or current, or future president of our nation. So when Jesus says, pay what you owe him, his leaders are to pay what you owe him. Now, You might be thinking, in fact, you most likely are thinking, okay, but is there ever a time as Christians when we ought not to submit to our governing leaders? And the answer is yes. Christians ought not to submit to the government when the government fails to do that which it was ordained by God to do when it fails to operate inside the role that God has designed for government to operate within. Or to put it another way, Christians have a responsibility to not submit to government when the government either prevents us from obeying the Lord or when the government forces us to sin. It's kind of the opposite of restraining evil and rewarding good. It's like, rewarding evil and restraining good. And if the government begins to reward evil and restrain good, we as Christians have an obligation to God before the government. So for example, if the government says, don't preach the gospel, then we have a responsibility to disobey the government. This would be the government preventing us from obeying God. Or, if the government said that Christian ministers must officiate at same-sex unions, or that Christian physicians must perform abortions, these would be examples of the state forcing Christians to sin. 
in which case Christians ought rightly not to submit. To submit would be sin. And in both cases, we must be loyal to God rather than human laws. There is a king, and he is Jesus. He's not a president, he's not a king, he's not an emperor, he's not a governor. And as Christians, we submit to Jesus' lordship. And yet we don't decide based on our own wisdom whether or not it's time to resist the government. And we don't decide based on MSNBC or CNN or Fox News when it's time for us to obey or resist the government. We resist the government only when Scripture indicates that we should obey God rather than man. So let me, before we move to our third and final point, let me add one more thing about the limited role of government and our submission or lack of submission to it. And that is this question, which I think is, gets lost sometimes when we think and talk about these sorts of things as Christians. And the question is this, how should Christians disobey the government? Because oftentimes the question is, when should Christians disobey the government? But I think the question how is almost, if not equally, as important as when. Because there is a way that as Christians we can engage in civil disobedience to the government or uncivil disobedience to the government. There are ways that we can rightly before God disobey the government, have an occasion to disobey the government, and yet the way in which we disobey is sinful and is wrong. And is just as wrong as if we had wrongly obeyed the government. If we must obey the government, how, how should we Here's a few things just to throw out, and then I would encourage you to think about this and maybe even talk about it with your small group this week. First, we should, if we must disobey the government, it it should be without sinful anger. There are right times when, as Christians, we absolutely should reject the government's authority in a specific area. But we must guard our hearts lest we do so in anger, which is sin. Sinful anger. Our disobedience to the government also ought to be fueled by our love for the Lord and our love for neighbor. Not our anger at neighbor. And if we disobey the government, we should do so while still respecting that God has given the place, he has put kings and rulers in their place. We might not understand why. We might think, why would God have put Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, who was incredibly wicked, why did he put him in place? And why did Jesus command his followers to pray for that wicked leader. And why did Jesus tell his followers to pay taxes to that wicked leader to prop up the wicked Roman Empire? This is where it should remind us that we, we very quickly reach the borders, the boundary lands of our limited human wisdom. And the wisdom of God is exhaustive. And he operates and works in ways that are far beyond what we can understand. 
So there are times when we are called as Christians to disobey the government while still praying for our leaders, praying that God would work and change their hearts, praying that God would would lead them to faith and repentance, that God would change their policies, that God would change our system. And we, we can actively be involved in our political processes, praying that God would use us to change the systems, to change our government, and still pray for our leaders. In fact, we see the apostles in the book of Acts sometimes disobeying governing authorities, but they do so prayerfully, Without sinful anger, they do so while respecting the fact that God has put leaders in place and that the the institution of the state is ordained by God. We are also to disobey in conformity to what 1 Peter 4.19 calls entrusting ourselves to our faithful judge while doing right. So we, we continue in trusting that God is good and that God is on the throne. And we're going to do what we can. But we're going to continue entrusting ourselves to the Lord while doing right. Finally, we ought to disobey in the counsel of mature Christians, not as zealous lone rangers. This is, I think, one of the benefits of the local church. It's one of the benefits of small groups and Bible studies, helping us to process this, helping us to talk through this. Hearing Christians of of varying perspectives and varying viewpoints, you get outside of the local church, you get outside of regular fellowship with believers, and what happens is your viewpoints begin to become narrower and narrower and more hardened and more hardened. And if you only listen to people who think and talk like you do and you're not exposed to other believers in the family of faith who view things a little bit differently and who push back and who challenge, I think we're called to be active in one another's lives, to think through these things as mature Christians, not as zealous lone rangers. So yes, Jesus teaches limited obedience of the government. But there's a more important point here in these verses. In fact, I would argue that this third and final main point this morning is the primary point of this entire text that we're looking at this morning, and that is this. Jesus teaches unlimited allegiance to God. Like there is a limited obedience to government, yes, but there is unlimited allegiance to God. Again, look at verse 25. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Like, what things are God's? Like, what things did He create? Over what things does God rule and reign and is completely sovereign? And the answer is everything. In fact, when preaching to the people in Athens, Paul in Acts chapter 17 declares, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all mankind and breath to everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. 
Like his point, God rules and reigns supreme over all things, in everything, the home, the church, the state, and all that is in it is under the reign of God. In him, all things live and move and have their being. And so he rightly is owed what belongs to him, which includes our very lives. Jesus is showing them, okay, you give to Caesar that which bears his image. You give to God that which bears his image. Which should take us back to Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let us make man in our image. And after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them Caesar has a limited reign of authority so grant him that but God's reign is without limits worship him I think Jesus here is also breaking down any artificial divide between the secular and the sacred, between the things of God and the things of this world. He's saying it all belongs to God. Giving to God the things that belong to him is our responsibility and our delight as his children. So, How do we do that? One way we do that is by asking ourselves every single day, how would the Lord want me to relate to my neighbor? How would the Lord want me to complete this assignment or this project? How would the Lord want me to speak to my spouse? How would the Lord want me to respond to my kids? What would the Lord want me to dwell on and meditate on in my mind? You see, our lives, friends, bear the image of God. He created us. We belong to him. All of us have the little you know, copyright sign somewhere stamped on us. Copyright God. This is the message of Romans chapter 12 when Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so we present our very selves to God, who reigns supreme over all things. Over all things. And so, with their plan having backfired, how do the chief priests Respond to this. Verse 26. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Should be a reminder, friends, that every time we plot against the Lord, our plans will backfire. Jonah learned this the hard way, didn't he? Every time we try to run from the Lord, he will always win. We also see here, I think, that Jesus' timing will not be rushed. 
Like he is in complete control. Even though he is one man against the council of the Pharisees and the chief priests and the leaders, and even though very shortly, in just a matter of a few days, he will be one man against almost the entire nation of Israel. As they shouted out, crucify and crucify, Jesus still will not be rushed. He is in complete control. He is clearly God. We see here in this exchange that God has designed order into his world, and it's a good thing. As Christians, we should rightly celebrate that order. And Jesus shows us here, I think, that government, yes, has a place. There is a purpose for government. But Jesus also shows us that government has boundaries, and the government's role is biblically narrow. But God's role is not. God's reign is without limits, which is why this morning we sang, Behold our God, seated on his throne, come let us adore him. And then we sang like 20 times together, you will reign forever, right? Why do we keep singing that? Because it's true and because we need to be reminded of that. He will reign forever. Not the U.S. Constitution, not a monarch in England, not someone else who sits on a throne, not a new world order. Jesus Christ will reign forever. His kingdom will endure. And so when we look around, friends, and we see evidences of the fall, and it's not hard to do, especially when we look at government, it ought to turn us to Jesus. It ought to serve as a reminder that kings and prime ministers and presidents are not our Savior. Only Jesus is. It should cause us to long for a place of true goodness and true justice and true beauty with a true king who is perfect. And when we look around and we see dysfunction and we are tempted to be discouraged, friends, take heart. We serve a king who has overcome the world. In the end, he will win. And we are receiving, Hebrews 12 is clear, a kingdom that is unshakable. A kingdom where justice and righteousness dwell because there dwells the king and his reign is ultimate and his reign is complete. And this king is worthy of every song we could ever sing to him. He is worthy of every praise we could ever bring to him. And he is worthy of every breath we breathe with our bodies. And he is worthy because he is holy because there is no one like our God. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your word once again. And I'm I thank you for texts of scripture like this this morning which challenge us in ways. Maybe challenge us because our knee-jerk reaction is to, is to grow depressed or discouraged, melancholy when we look around and we see dysfunction in our world. These texts, these verses this morning, Father, are a reminder that that there is a king on his throne. 
we are made in his image. We are called to bow our knee to him and him alone. Father, for others in, in the room, there's a probably a passivity, perhaps, that describes our lives as we're so easy to just go along with the status quo and, and to not think critically and carefully and biblically about our government and about the institution of the state and about our world. And Father, we're, I pray this morning that your word would challenge us. It would be a reminder that our allegiance is to Jesus. Fathers, for others in this room, maybe their tendency is to immediately look for ways to, to push back against any sort of human authority. Father, your word this morning challenges us that you have ordained the institution of the state for a purpose and you place leaders, you remove leaders. We don't always understand why. In fact, often, at least in my lifetime, we, I scratch my head and I don't understand why, but, but we know that you are good and we know that you are wise and your ways are beyond our own. So we trust in you. Help us to be a church that challenges one another, that has helpful and healthy conversations about these topics this morning as we remind ourselves that Jesus is king. As we think through what it looks like to be citizens, both of, most importantly, the eternal kingdom, your kingdom, the kingdom of God, but also an earthly kingdom, to be good citizens and stewards here as well. May those conversations shed more light than heat. May those conversations enlighten and encourage and continue to point us back to your word and cause us to trust more and to love more. And I pray ultimately those conversations continue to remind us that regardless of what is going on in our world, there is a king who is worthy. Worthy of every song, worthy of every praise, worthy of every breath, because he is holy. Father, that there is no one like our God. And so we worship, we respond now to you in song together, declaring these truths with our voices lifted high and our hearts filled with gratitude to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.